Isaiah chapter 48. Well, here is a passage of Scripture that very clearly tells us much by way of peace. It's a passage of Scripture whereby we see this great longing in the heart of God that His children, His people experience the wonderful blessing of peace. And this is really what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see that there is in the heart of God a longing and desire for you to experience true peace of soul. That God in somehow who is the God while He is always the ever-blessed God, the God while He is always happy in Himself. There is on the pages of Scripture from time to time those places where we see something of, an, uh, something of a dissatisfaction in the very soul of God when His people are not experienced all that they should be experiencing. And the experience that God desires for you this morning is the experience of peace. And so what I want to do is I want to introduce this concept of peace to you. I'm going to speak to you a little bit about peace before we go into any of the details of the passage of Scripture itself. Now we know that peace is greatly sought after, is it not? We know and we understand that people will do many things to have peace of mind and peace of soul. We know friends and we speak to people who for some reason, one way or another, cannot find any peace within them. And we feel for them, our hearts go out to them, and we offer to them Jesus Christ, but for some reason they fail to come. And they, and they persist in that state of uneasiness, that state where they never find the peace that God offers to them. Peace, again, not only is a greatly desired thing, but peace is a very elusive thing, is it not? One of the things that uh, historians have noted is that uh, if you look at recorded history, recorded history only shows about 8% of recorded time has, been, has known times of peace. 8% of recorded history has known times of peace. That's all. Peace is very elusive. There is something in the nature of man that is very unsettled. Man finding conflict one with another. Conflict within himself and conflict within his neighbor. So this thing of peace, again, is very much sought after. This thing of peace is very elusive. But this thing of peace is something that God desires you to have. Did you see verse 18? Oh, that thou wouldest hearken unto me. Then thy peace would have been as a river. Do you see something of the passion of God in that? Do you see something of the desire in God in that, that you and I as His people would experience peace? And so as I said before, what I hope to do from this passage of Scripture is to open up to you a number of things that are embedded in the text. Number one, I want you to see that God truly and genuinely desires you to have peace. Number two, I want you to see from this passage of Scripture that God, that God will show to us the way of peace. And let me just give you something of a preview of that. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened unto my commandments. That's the way of peace. We might say this, that this is the method of peace. There is a much clearer, uh, there is a much clearer vision that we will get, so to speak. There, are, there is a much clearer insight into the word that we will get by way of how this peace comes along. But peace is always bound up with obedience to the call of God. And we'll see this as we open it up. The third thing I want you to see is that... Uh, is that God not only shows to, uh, uh, desires uh, man's peace, He shows to him the blessings of peace, He calls him to the way of peace, but we also see this, that He refuses to give peace to the wicked. That will create something of a challenge to us in our sermon this morning. Because which of us have not heard our own hearts testify against us as to our own wickedness? Whose heart here among us today can stand in the presence of a holy God and say, in and of myself, I am clean in your sight, Holy Father. Those of you that have been with us in our evening, us in our evening services, you remember when we uh, took a look at the life of that man, 
King Ahab, and we opened up the sermon with this little with this little sentence: "A wicked man and a holy God." Is there anything more contrary one to another? And so, no peace for the wicked. Where does that put you, and where does that put me? And the last point that we will see is that God uses this question, God uses this declaration to open to our sight the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in this passage. This is the prophet Isaiah we're speaking of here. He is the evangelical prophet. You remember a few weeks ago when we spoke about the prophetic characteristics needed for our day. We spoke about having the eyes of Jeremiah that would weep for the sins of people. We spoke about having a forehead of Ezekiel that would stand hard against hard-hearted sinners in our day. We spoke about the insight of a Daniel who knew the times by reading the scripture. But we also spoke about Isaiah who had a vision of Jesus Christ. There's a vision of Jesus Christ in this passage. And it's through Jesus Christ that we will see this peace that God offers. So as I said before, peace, greatly desired peace, uh, especially elusive peace. Again, only 8% of recorded history. So what is peace then? Well, again, we have our definitions of peace. I think that are most easily understood. Peace is that cessation of conflict, that cessation of warfare. But I think that when we try to define and understand what peace is, by way of experience, we know that peace is more than a lack of something, is it not? Peace is not just something not being there. Peace is something that is there. And I would suggest this to you, that peace is that particular tranquility of soul that God gives to all those who are now in a right relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. It is, the, it is the effect of God being reconciled to sinners through Jesus Christ. And so the reality that God is now, again, at peace with me in spite of my sin because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, peace enters into the soul. It's not merely that conflict is no longer there. It's not merely that there's not this uh, internal uh, 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 hardship that's going on. Now something positive is there, and it is the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. God is reconciled to this sinner. God is reconciled to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, have you come to faith in Jesus Christ to understand and to experience this peace? And so again, peace is not merely the absence of something. It is the presence of something it is, the presence, it is the presence of Christ who gives that tranquility of soul, knowing that we have now been redeemed and, and reconciled to God. Now, it's very interesting. It is the great blessing of the gospel, is it not, to give peace. Isn't that the passage of Scripture that we read from this morning in Romans chapter 5? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace is a present possession for the people of God. This is why over and over again we are called to live in peace and called to live according to peace. This is why Christ says to his church, let there be peace among you. We see this in, uh, in Philippians chapter 4 verse 7. What does Paul say to the church? And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and your mind through Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. And the God of peace shall be with you. You see, again and again, these, this call to peace is, is what we see in the Word of God. It is the portion, we might say, of the redeemed people of God. It's kind of interesting when we take a look at peace, and not only by way of how we understand it in our, in our common language, but when we look at it biblically, one of the things that we see is that uh, peace really comes to us uh, through, that Hebrew through that Hebrew concept of shalom. And it's very interesting that the word shalom may even be larger than our concept of peace, but it always includes peace. In one sense, peace is always there whenever we think of shalom. But it has this idea of the well-being of, of the soul, that, that everything is as it ought to be. Everything is right in the soul. 
And so when God speaks to his people, he speaks to them shalom. He, he blesses them with shalom. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? That when you look in the Old Testament, the great benediction that the priests were to pray over the people of God is found in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. And we read this. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. God desires you to have peace. He blesses you with peace. And so you see this wonderful thing called peace. Now one of the things that we need to see and understand concerning peace is essentially this. That while God gives it, and it is, true, it is the true portion of the people of God, you must understand that this peace, this peace can be forfeited by sin. Peace internally and peace even on a national level can be forfeited. I think of the passage of Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 5. And listen to this unsettling passage of Scripture. It's a passage of Scripture that's somewhat strange to us for the following reason. Here is God dealing with his prophet Jeremiah, and he is saying to Jeremiah, cease praying for this people. Cease praying for this people. What a thing to hear from God. And this is what God says to Jeremiah in 16, verse 5. For thus saith the Lord, enter not into the house of mourning, neither go to the lament, nor bemoan them. Now listen to what God says. For I have taken away my peace from this people, saith the Lord, even loving kindness and mercies. Look at the day and age in which we live. Can you look around our current setting and can you say that we live in a time of peace within our nation? And I am by no stretch of the imagination a prophet, but I have to wonder aloud if the lack of peace that we are experiencing in our day could it be? May it not be. But could it be? But may it not be that God is taking peace away from our land? I hope not. I pray not. I would encourage you with this. We've heard no word from God to stop praying for this nation. I would encourage you for this. You pray that God will raise up men to preach the gospel in this nation. I would encourage you to do this. You pray that God would grant that we might know the peace that comes about through the blessing of God upon us. And so again, this whole thing of peace, what a matter this is. And so when we talk about personal peace, when we talk about national peace, I think one of the things that we can see is this. It was very interesting as I, as I was preparing for this. I was looking at some, some resources and, and uh, some, um, some of the, what we would call the intelligentsia of our day post-World War II. Very strange, you know, somewhat strange. These men were saying that uh, it would be, it's almost an impossibility for the world as such to experience peace because there are so many conflicting parties in the world. And what these men, highly significant, highly influential men, were making a case for was the case of what we often call a one-world form of government. It's very strange for me to read that in this, uh, in, in, in this very highly respected uh, uh, resource uh, work. It was the, it was the, it was the Dictionary of Philo the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And in their article on uh, the, uh, the philosophy of war and peace, you have this great push post-World War II to do away with what we would call national boundaries. Now, I'm not getting political here, but I just want to say this. Isn't it an amazing thing that fallen man recognizes where there are competing allegiances? There's a great challenge to peace, but that helps us to understand what internal peace is. Because internal peace is when there are no competing uh, 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 allegiances to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Peace in the soul is when the Lordship of Jesus Christ goes unchallenged. 
Do you want peace in your heart today? Let Christ reign supreme. Do you want peace in your heart today? Let there be no challenge to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you want peace in your heart today? Let there be nothing by way of self that seeks to dominate the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but place self under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Understand, again, the world, the flesh, and the devil, these are not your friends, but these are enemies. Let there be no rival to Christ within your soul. This is how peace comes. You see, again, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Even fallen man recognizes where there are competing interests, there's the potential for conflict. Oh, do away with the competing interest. You see, God has the well-being of your soul intended. That's what the text says. Oh, that thou wouldest hearken unto me. Then you would have had peace like a river. You understand the good that God intends for you. And so this passage of Scripture then, I want you to see and understand, as I said before, that God intends and God desires the way of peace for His people. How much does God desire it? Well, He uses language. He, he desires it so, so greatly that He uses language that sets us back on our heels a little bit. We are so often and rightly thinking about God and His exalted majesty. The God whose will cannot be thwarted. The God who will bring things to pass as He has decreed. And we're right in prioritizing that way of thinking. But isn't it an amazing thing from time to time we read through the Scripture and we see God pleading with His people. We read through the Scripture and we see God stooping down to the level of His people saying, please come. We see God again extending Himself over and over again that His people might hear and respond in faith. Listen to these passages of Scripture. Again, the one in front of us. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened unto my commandments. You see the desire of God there. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. This is God speaking about His people. Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their children forever. Do you see God's desire there? Deuteronomy 39, verse, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Psalm 81, verse 13. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. What do we see here? We see in the part of God this great longing and this desire for the peace and the well-being of His people. Now understand this. God is not an emotional wreck in heaven, biting His nails as to whether or not you're going to get it right. God is that God who is forever blessed. God is that God who is, a, who is a complete tranquility within himself. There is nothing that disturbs the nature of God in that one sense. But there is another sense in which God extends himself. As I said before, he condescends to the love of humanity. He speaks to us in the language of men in order that we might understand that this great and awesome God truly desires my well-being. My friends... This is not me saying this to you. This is the word of God. God desires your well-being. Oh, let Jesus Christ be unrivaled in your soul. And so again, we see here that God desires uh, for man the way of peace. As I said before, it's not wrong to say that God desires uh, the peace of his people in the strongest of terms. He pleads with them repeatedly to do that which will bring blessing and peace uh, that, God, that God desires. Again, other passages that you're probably familiar with. Jeremiah 27, verse 13. Why will you die? Why will you die, my people? He goes on to say in Ezekiel 18, 31. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? 
Ezekiel 33:11 and say unto them as I live saith the Lord I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked might turn from his way and live turn ye from your evil ways why will you die O house of Israel and the turn ye is repeated twice there turn ye turn ye from your evil ways that's God speaking to you do you understand God is pleading with you and isn't it a glorious thing that in this New Testament age, who and what are you and I to be? We're to be ambassadors for Christ, like the Apostle Paul says. And what does the Apostle Paul say to us? The way that we are to engage the unbeliever. Again, we are to implore them in Christ, in Christ's stead. I implore you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And so again, this great desire on the part of God to see his people enjoy the peace uh, that he offers to them and the peace that he gives. It's a wonderful thing to think of, again, that God desires in, in such strong terms that you and I might understand and know this peace. Well, again, sufficient, I hope it is, to this point for you to know and understand that, that God genuinely and truly desires your peace. The second thing I want you to understand here is in this passage of Scripture, God shows to us the, the way of peace or the blessing of peace or what I might call the method of peace. God shows to us the method of peace. You know, how many people, how many friends you know that are looking for a method of peace? How many people, how many friends you know that are looking for a way of peace? And I'm saying to you, if you grasp the, the sense of this passage of Scripture, you'll, do, you'll be able to do your friends and loved ones much good. God will do you much good through this passage of Scripture. There is a method of peace laid out here. There is God's way of peace laid out here. And we see it here. And what I want you to see is this. Look in verse 18 and 19. What we see here is that God shows to us the method of peace, not only by the, not only by the declaration of it, but also by the incentivizing of it. Notice what we see here. Verses 18 and 19. If you only had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea, your descendants would have been as the sand, and your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be cut off nor destroyed from before me. What I want you to notice here is this. God incentivizes obedience by way of not a singular blessing, but by way of a cluster of blessings. And God often does that, doesn't he? He's not stingy in his blessings, is he? He is the God who is a bountiful God. He is a God who pours out His blessings freely and, with, and in a multiplied way. And we see it here in this passage of Scripture. Notice again. Oh, if you had only paid attention to my commandments, your peace would have been like a river. What's the picture here? Well, first of all, isn't it encouraging that, that it is such a, a useful picture? Peace like a river. How many hymns we have where, where we have this, uh, the, these two ideas brought together, peace and a river. And what the picture is is, is, is essentially this. Israel at this time was in the land of Babylon. Uh, they, were, they, they, were, they were familiar with the river Euphrates and they would have seen the river Euphrates as a river going by every day, not as one of the secondary streams that would have dried up, but that river would have been going on full flow. And what God is saying, if you would have hearkened unto my commands, your peace would have been like that. It would have been never ending. It would have been ever flowing. It would have been a true experience in your heart. But not only do we see this, not only do we see again the, the singular best blessing of peace, which would be wonderful in and of itself, we also have the additional blessing of righteousness. This is a wonderful thing. And did you notice it in the passage of Scripture? Your peace would have been as a river and your righteousness as the waves of the sea. Well, in one sense, again, the same, the same emphasis is being made. Go down to the seashore here. Again, we're close enough. Go down to the shore there. And what will you see? You'll see the waves coming in continually. They never stop. No matter how small or how gentle they come in, they come in. 
And God is saying that if you would have obeyed me, your righteousness would have been as the waves of the sea coming in over and over and over and over again. You would have been, now you, not, not only would you have had blessing within yourself, you would have been a source of continual blessing to those around you. And so again, we see these two ideas of peace and righteousness always presented to us in the scripture by way of the gift of God's grace. Never something that we're able to earn within ourselves, but that which God deposits in the soul. A sense of peace, the, re- the realization of righteousness. You know, again, as I said before, you guys, you, you guys, I'm sorry, at your church, you know this. You know that God, again, blesses the soul by way of the, by way of the work of righteousness within. He's able to do these things. But did you see one more thing? Not only your, your, your peace like a river and your, and your righteousness like waves, but he goes on to say in verse 19, and again, this is from the, new, uh, from the NIV, your descendants would have been like the sand and your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be cut off nor destroyed from before me. What God is referring to here are the covenant blessings, blessings given to Abraham. These are covenantal blessings that God said he would be more than happy to fulfill. And again, it reminds us of Genesis 22 when, when God spoke to Abraham that in blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore and thy sand and thou shalt possess thy and thy seed shall possess the gate of thy enemies. You see, God again desires and I want you to see here that God by way of his desire incentivizes, I'm sorry, God by way of his desire, shows to us the method of peace. And in this passage of scripture, in this particular context, the method of peace is obedience to the revealed will of God. God not only makes this known, but God incentivizes your obedience. Did you ever think of that? He incentivizes it. Not a singular blessing, but a cluster of blessings. This is the God that you serve. This is the God who desires your well-being. And so again, God showing to us the way of uh, this, the, this blessing. He, he shows to us uh, uh, the blessings of peace. Well, the next thing I want you to see in this passage of Scripture as we move through it is that not only does God desire our blessing, not only does God show us the, the blessings of, of peace and the cluster that goes with it, but God also calls man. He calls man to the, to, 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 to the way of peace. And the reason why I'm saying this is because you have to see in the passage of Scripture there is a sense in which God is moving now from something of a uh, something of an uh, something of a of a revealing of a uh, of their lack now calling them to present obedience and aren't you glad that this is what God does aren't you glad that in the face of your of your last sin aren't I glad that in the face of my last sin that God didn't say okay that's it I'm moving on but rather God appeals to the soul over and over again doesn't he And here in this passage of Scripture, he does the same thing. Notice what we see here in verse 20 and 21. Go ye forth from Babylon. Flee ye from the Chaldeans. What's being said here? What God is doing is God is preparing his people for that time when God will raise up a deliverer. Now, contextually, in the passage of Scripture in the book of Isaiah, the deliverer that's going to come on the scene immediately to the text will be this King Cyrus. Cyrus will be raised up as a great deliverer. Cyrus, who does not know God, but will be the instrument of God. He will be the servant of God. And so what God is doing to his people, he's calling them to get ready for the day of deliverance. And he calls them by way of a great challenge and by way of a great exhortation. And what does he say? Flee Babylon. Flee the Chaldeans. And God is still calling for you and me to flee Babylon and to flee the Chaldeans. You see, Babylon and the Chaldeans, they take our peace from us. 
Our sins and our worldliness take our peace from us. And what does the gospel call us to? It calls us to flee these things. But I want you to notice something in this as well. That whenever God calls us people to a challenging task, and you know how challenging it is to leave, to leave our sins, don't we? When God calls us to a challenging task, what does, what does He do? He introduces something of Himself into the situation to once again to incentivize our obedience. What am I talking about here? Well, I want you to notice, go back to verse 17. Notice what we say here. Notice who this God is who calls. Look at verse 17. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teaches thee the prophet, which leadeth thee by the way that thou should go. What's God doing here? Yes, he's calling them to a very challenging task in verse 20. They've been there, or they will, they, by, by the time their deliverance comes, they will have been there for a couple of generations. But God is calling them to leave, again, to, to leave that behind and to move on with them. And so in order to incentivize that, he presents himself to them by way of a revelation of his character, a revelation of his nature. And did you see how God reveals himself here? He says, I am the Lord. The Hebrew word here is the, is the word for Jehovah or Yahweh. It is the covenant name of God. He reminds them of all of his covenant responsibilities to them. He reveals himself to them as their redeemer. He reveals himself to them as the holy one. He reveals himself to, he reveals himself to them as the one who will lead them. And so what God is doing is essentially this. In the face of the challenge that lays in front of them, he's making something of his nature known to his people. Every time God calls you, my brothers and sisters, to some challenging, some challenging task, every time God calls you to leave off some dear sin, look and have your eyes and your ears open for some manifestation or some revelation of the nature of God in that situation. God calling you from yourself, God calling you from your sin to himself by revealing something of himself. It is the Lord thy God, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. You see, the one who leads you. This is the God who calls. This is the God who incentivizes obedience. This is the God who desires your peace. And so in this, once again, God is showing to us the way of peace. He is calling us to that way of peace by way of the forsaking of our sins. And in, in, in Isaiah's day, it was a leaving off of Babylon. Now, what I, what I want you to see, as I, as I said here before, that, that when, God, when God calls men to these difficult tasks, he, he again makes himself known by way of something of his nature. Uh, when he calls hardened sinners to forsake their way, he reveals something of his authority and of his power over souls. You see, the God with whom you and I have to deal with is the God who can consign men and women, boys and girls, to an eternal hell. But he makes himself known not only by way of his awesome holiness and righteousness, he makes himself known by way of his tender mercy as well. And so in the gospel, Jesus Christ comes to us and we see something of the compassion of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he, as I said before, when he sets a man to some great task, he makes known the reality and the power of his spirit moving them along. And so God making himself known. Well, what I also want you to see is this, is that when he calls us to these great tasks, he calls us to leave our sin and to engage in obedience in a particular fashion. Notice what we have here in the passage of Scripture, verse 20. Go ye forth from Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans. And notice what we have here. 
Notice what God doesn't say as you and I flee our sins. He doesn't say flee your sins with a voice of moaning. He doesn't say declare you that. He doesn't say tell nobody about it. He doesn't say keep quiet about these things. He says when you leave those old sins behind, when God is saving your soul and calling you to heaven, go to heaven with a song in your heart, brothers and sisters. You see, there's a song that God gives to His people here. Notice again, go ye forth, flee ye from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare ye, tell ye this. So what does God do when He delivers His people? Oh, He puts a song within their hearts. My brothers and sisters, I hope and I pray that as we gather together and we sing some of these old-fashioned hymns, yes, they are, but there's something of substance to them. And I hope and I pray that those songs resonate with you all the way to heaven. I hope you go singing to heaven. I hope you go praising God to heaven. I hope again you, your, voice will be, your voice will be just another voice that joins the chorus of angels in, in, in eternity on high. And so again, God calls his people to leave, to leave Babylon with singing. But there's something else that God does here. Look in verse 21. And they thirsted not when he led them through the desert. What's this referring to? He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. What's this a reference to? He clayed the rock also. Notice when God calls you out of your sin, he not only puts a song in your heart to sing on your way to heaven, he brings you back to the word of God. That's what God's doing here. God is saying, look, I'm going to show you a passage of scripture here. And I'm going to show you how, how I was able to deliver my people. And you look in the word of God and what will you see? You will see a record of my faithfulness. And you remember last week when we talked about our remembrance of the, Lord, Lord's, uh, of the Lord's death in the Lord's Supper. And you remember how when we talked about the, the concept of, re, of remembrance isn't just a mere mental reflection of something that happened in the past, but it is an engagement of the past with the power of God that was there, bringing it into the present. And God wants his people to go forward to heaven with the full realization of not only what he did in the past, but what he can do in, what he can do in the present and what he will do in the future. You see, God never, God, never leave, God never shakes you off of His Word. You're going to heaven, but, this, but, but everything that's in this book is going with you. You see, God points you and me back to His Word. And so notice what we see here. This is the method of happiness. This is the method of peace. The method of peace to be obedient to God. The method of peace to go to, go to heaven with a song in our heart. The method of peace to come back to the Word of God over and over again and be reminded of the great things that God does for us. But there's one more thing in the passage of Scripture, and it almost seems out of place at this point, but it's not. Verse 22, and this is what we see, the last point, well, not the last point, but, but the, the next to the last point in our sermon. God refuses to give peace to the wicked. The word wicked here is kind of an interesting word. It, it has the idea of moral laxity. It has the idea of a particular looseness. Does that sound like anything that we see in our day? A moral laxity? A looseness. And God says there's no peace. And the world says there's all kind of fun in that. But God says there's no peace. And the world says come on and join us. And God says flee from Babylon. And the world says you'll be happy all the way. And God says you'll be moaning all the way to hell unless you leave Babylon and have song in your heart and go to heaven with rejoicing. So if there's no peace for the wicked, friends, where does that put us? Where does that put us? Did you have to deal with any wicked thoughts this morning? Or maybe not wicked in the most extreme sense of the word. Did you have to deal with any thoughts that just shouldn't have been there? A little angry when you shouldn't have been angry? A little impatient when you shouldn't have been impatient? 
Do you say it like the Apostle Paul, oh, wretched man that I am? Do you say it like the Apostle Paul, I know that within me, within my flesh dwells no good thing? And if all these things, again, are true for those who flee and obey the Word of God, and if I see in myself this, 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 even this remaining wickedness, what am I to do? But we're not done with the text. And God's not done with you. Look back at verse 16. I told you you were going to see Jesus Christ in this passage. Come ye near unto me, and hear ye this. This is God speaking. Are you the wicked who's asking God, Lord God, how can I do this? Are you the wicked who's crying out for God, Father, I, I would love to leave Babylon, but I find these invisible chains that I can't break? Listen to God. This is God speaking. Listen. This is God's word to you today. Come ye near unto me. That's God saying that to you. Come ye near unto me. You invoked God's presence this morning, didn't you, when you sung that hymn? When we prayed that, that prayer of invocation, we asked, God's, we asked God's presence to be with us. And what do we see here? God is now saying to you, come near to me. Hear ye this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I. God is there. And now look at this, and now the Lord God. We have a change here now. And now the Lord God and His Spirit hath sent me. Who is this a reference to? God the Father is now showing to us the Lord Jesus Christ coming forth in all of His glory. This reference in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16 is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Some commentators wrestle with this. Some commentators say, well, maybe this is a reference to Isaiah. I don't think that it is. Some commentators say, maybe this is a reference to Cyrus. It, I, I think in, in one sense, historically, it had, a, it had a connection to Cyrus. But this is, the, this is the servant of the Lord par excellence. This is the same servant of the Lord who we find in Isaiah 53. That same servant who suffered in order that you and I might be saved. That same servant of whom we read in Isaiah chapter, uh, in Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 61. Uh, verse uh, uh, verse nine, I believe it is, uh, where we. Uh, I'm sorry, sixty one, uh, Isaiah sixty one, verse one, where we see this: the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. That is prophetically referring to Jesus Christ. And while it may have been fulfilled in some small way by some earthly deliverer, God through the earthly deliverer is saying to you, if I did it by means of an earthly deliverer, by way of the human tra tragedy that you're in, how much more by way of the spiritual need that you have, I will send forth my son. And it's a wonderful passage of scripture because what we see in this passage of scripture is God sending forth his son. And, and as, as, the, as, as the passage says, again, the Lord God has sent me. Now, the other interesting thing to see is this. And now, the King James reads this way. And now, and now the Lord God and His Spirit had sent me. Probably the better way to understand it is this. That the Lord God hath sent me, a reference to Jesus Christ, and His Spirit, a reference to the Holy Spirit. This is a gospel passage. This is a passage, again, that has Christ everywhere in it. Here we see the triune God working effectively and savingly and tenderly and powerfully to bring to you and me as his people the peace that he so longs and desires for us to have. My friends, I ask you the question this morning. Do you have this peace that's spoken of here in the passage of Scripture? God longs for you to have it. However I may have presented this passage to you, it may have been completely inadequate, but don't miss the message of the passage. God longs for you to have peace. 
He incentivizes your obedience in order that you might give that obedience and experience that peace. But most of all, when you find yourself in the despair of your own wickedness, He points you not so much to your own obedience. He points you to His obedient Son who went to the cross on your behalf in order that you might be fully reconciled to God. And you know what that word reconciliation means. It means those who were once in enmity with one another are now at peace because the reason for their enmity has now been removed. The enmity was caused by sin. Sin is removed. Christ truly is the Prince of Peace. My brothers and sisters, I declare to you the peace that God gives. May you, through the gracious embrace of Jesus Christ, know that peace in every element of your life. Let us pray.